coming up on Ibogaine Uncovered. I think that for our community and for Marcus as an individual, he was much more accustomed to attaining something, checking it off the box, like goal attained, what's next. And this is different. This is a completely different set of circumstances where there really is no finish line here. There's like Mm -hmm. a constant state of improvement happening and there are small wins along the way, but it's not like, oh, I went to Mexico. Oh, my life is completely stable now. I'll just get back to business as usual. He's Mm -hmm. still very much in his integration process and we're going on, this will be seven years this November since his first psychedelic experience, he still wakes up. He still has bad days. He still meditates every morning. He still does breath work. He's still, you know, committed to the ongoing work necessary, working with a coach, changing deep-rooted neural pathways, being aware. Mm -hmm. We go through our own communication challenges that require constant attention and dedication, but we're doing the work. My name is Amanda Siebert. And you're listening to Ibogaine Uncovered, the podcast that explores the impact of one of the most powerful psychedelic medicines on the planet. Can Ibogaine really get to the root of our trauma? Join me as I ask practitioners, patients, researchers, and specialists about their experiences. Welcome back to Ibogaine Uncovered. I'm your host, Amanda Siebert. In this episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Amber Capone. Amber is the CEO and co-founder at Veterans Exploring Treatment Solutions, or VETS. Four years ago, she walked away from a successful career in real estate to serve in these roles, determined to improve the life of her family and others who were suffering after her husband, Marcus, underwent a powerful transformation with the help of Ibogaine. We start by talking about the challenges associated with Marcus' retirement and return to civilian life, including his struggles with TBI, PTSD, depression, anger, and substance use, and the impact that had on Amber's role as a wife and mother. We also dig into the specific challenges that veterans face as they try to navigate treatment options and the role that stigma plays among veterans and how it can often prevent them from seeking treatment. Then we get into how Marcus and Amber learned about Ibogaine and the point of complete desperation they were at when they found it. Amber shares that when Marcus received his treatment, he wasn't exactly prepared for the outcome. She talks about how this helped them develop programming at VETS to prevent them from experiencing the same thing with their clients. She shares about the incredible shift that Marcus experienced after Ibogaine and the conversation they had with their children after he underwent psychedelic treatment. Amber and her husband, Marcus, have been advocating for access to psychedelic-assisted therapy, particularly Ibogaine treatment, since 2018, and have quickly become the faces of the movement. Their story and their work are prime examples of how, when the situation feels absolutely hopeless, a single profound psychedelic experience can be a complete game changer. And in turn, how that game changing experience often leads to an undeniable sense that it must be shared with others who've experienced the same hopelessness. 
Amber Capone, welcome to I Began Uncovered. Thank you so much for joining us today. Can I ask where you're joining us from? Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm joining you from the San Diego area. I'm really excited to dive into your story. I know you've been an advocate of this medicine for a long time. Let's start by rewinding 10 years. Your husband, Marcus, has been medically retired after 13 years as a Navy SEAL. He's struggling with PTSD and depression, anger, substance use. What is going on in your mind at this time? What are some things that you're thinking, feeling, and how is all of this affecting your home life? At that time, I'm thinking... I'm not a quitter, but I might be forced to quit and and not necessarily quit, but make a choice, a choice for my children. And home life had become unbearable. It had become unsustainable. And Marcus had tried many things to try to get ahead of his post-service challenges, but nothing was really moving the needle. And, you know, for any treatment resistant individual, the more and more things that you try unsuccessfully, the more and more hopeless and desperate you become. And so I was really afraid that we would lose Marcus to suicide. I thought best case scenario, I I just couldn't do this anymore and I would probably have to leave him. And that came really after our kids were experiencing their own challenges. And at one point my daughter said to me, mom, how much longer do we have to do this? And I just realized that I might be tough and I might be resilient, but they didn't have a choice in what they were being forced along in living this lifestyle. And they'd already been through so much with war deployments and the transition struggles. And I thought, I've got to choose them. I've got to choose them. And in doing so, I will probably increase the likelihood that they will be fatherless. Wow. I can't imagine. So I alluded to earlier, you know, some of the things that Marcus was struggling with. One of them was PTSD. Now, uh, according to the National Center for PTSD, the prevalence of this disorder in veterans who have served in Iraq or Afghanistan is about 11 to 20%, which is quite high. And he did six combat tours in 13 years of service. Now, I want to talk about your vision at VETS. We'll get into this a little bit later. The idea, if I'm clear, is that what you're envisioning is a world where veterans have access to more advanced healthcare options to heal from things like PTSD and as well as the physical wounds of war. I imagine that desire stems from the lack of options that you've and Marcus had at that time. We shared in the four years following, as you alluded to, that you tried a lot of things and they didn't, they didn't really work. Can you share some of the specific challenges of navigating treatment as a veteran? Like what would I as a civilian not necessarily be aware of in trying to navigate that world? So I feel the intentions are really admirable of the Veterans Administration and providing free health care to anyone who has served this nation. There are a lot of individuals, even though it makes us a small percentage of our population, there are a lot of individuals, millions that have served, and it's difficult to offer health care in a substantive way to each and every person who's ever worn the uniform. There's a lot of rotational turnover within the VA. It has been described as being in a full of bureaucratic red tape and very difficult to enact change, even though the at the provider level, they are 
really in the fight and they really want to make a difference to enact change all the way up the ranks to VA leadership is very challenging. One of the challenges of operating within the system of either military medicine or VA is that their number one go-to is pharmaceuticals. Number two would be talk therapy. And yes, there's a high prevalence of PTSD, especially for anyone who's seen combat or served in the post 9-11 era of service to the nation. But it's not always just PTSD and it shouldn't just be rubber stamped as being PTSD. There are things like traumatic brain injury that have to be taken into account, weapons fire, concussive events, subconcussive events, explosive charges. There, there are a lot of things that science is suggesting could cause neurological or neurocognitive issues that also have other mental health conditions wrapped up in them. And this very complex set of issues. But, you know, traumatic brain injury can be directly attributed to depression, anxiety, impulsivity, substance use disorder, increased suicidality. When that is just treated as PTSD being a purely psychological problem and someone is basically told, take your prescriptions and talk to someone, but it's really a physiological condition, that to me screams misdiagnosis. And Mark has at some point had 10 different prescriptions in the VA system because they weren't helping. And so some very well-intentioned doctor or set of doctors, because they're constantly changing, did an assessment and Marcus said, oh, I'm, I, I can't sleep now. Oh, here's something to sleep. Oh, I can't wake up now. Here's something to wake up. Oh, I can't focus now. Here's something to focus. And so every prescription that had a side effect prompted another prescription to address the side effect. And it just became this roller coaster carousel of insanity because then he would forget to take one. And then that would cause another escalation of side effects. And anyway, all suffice to say, they're very well-intentioned, not necessarily utilizing the most effective tools. The tools that they are utilizing could be wrapped up in a series of misdiagnoses or pharmaceuticals that are not able to get to root cause. Then you have the issue of the provider turnover, which I had alluded to previously. Marcus did try to speak with therapists within the VA and he'd get through childhood or his first series of deployments or something. And then the provider would switch. There's a challenge of getting an appointment for medical or uh, psychiatric care. You wait weeks or months. And then like during COVID, all appointments were online. It was, so it's just this myriad of issues that exist within the VA. And a lot of veterans just flat out refuse to go. And their care is fragmented or severely lacking because of this continuity and approach from the top down is very ineffective. Hmm, thank you. I, I really appreciate you making that distinction earlier about PTSD and TBI. I had the privilege of speaking to Dr. Nolan Williams a few days ago for uh, the Hi. earlier episode of this podcast. And, you know, it was really interesting to learn about the overlap of those different things that you, you mentioned. So when I was looking for stats for this podcast, I came across a story about the stigma associated with mental health issues in the military, featuring retired mm -hmm. Navy SEAL Drew Barnett. And in it, he says, during my early training in the Navy, one of our instructors said, you know, hey guys, it's better to die than look stupid. 
Just make sure you don't do both. Mm. And in thinking about that, I realized that this this is a lot of the mindset that exists in anyone who has served. We don't you don't want to look weak, and you don't want to be someone who is not dependable. How have you witnessed the stigma play out among veterans who are struggling with things like TBI, PTSD, who could use help but just are not really um, motivated to seek it out because of the stigma that exists? Yeah, thank you for bringing light to this because it's very counterculture to be engaged in the dialogue that we are consistently engaged in now. And honestly, it prevented us from speaking out for a year after Marcus had received so much relief through his initial Ibogaine journey. We didn't speak out because we didn't want anyone to know we were struggling, let alone that we had gotten help or that the help came in such a stigmatized and misunderstood form. When someone is active duty, they could absolutely be taken off the line or ostracized by their peers for appearing to be weak. And unfortunately, many of them more or less become a Greek tragedy and what makes them strong ends up becoming their own undoing because they never know when it's safe to admit that there's an an issue. We were more or less coming apart at the seams, but behind closed doors and and public facing, it looked like we had everything together, probably. I think a lot of veteran families, military families are suffering in silence because it's not safe to speak out. And honestly, if I had a dollar for every time a spouse contacts me and says what we're going through, I don't want anyone to know. No one can know this. It's horrible. I'm like, you are not alone. And the suicide of one of... My closest friend's husband's and a former teammate of Marcus's is what prompted us to get out of our comfort zone a year after Marcus had undergone Ibogaine treatment. And I was sitting at his funeral and I was more or less overcome with this feeling of dread that this would be the next wave of funerals to hit our community if we weren't brave enough to go against the grain. And so finding that courage for us has always remained rooted in the loss of this individual named Chad Wilkinson. His wife, Sarah, is on our board at Betts, and I'm just so proud of the way that she's carried on his legacy and raised awareness around suicide. And Betts, in its current form, exists today in honor of him in so many ways because his passing was just such a wake-up call and it gave us the courage that we needed to stand and say we struggled too it's normal to struggle it is not normal to mask it and actually the greatest show of strength is vulnerability i think that we've done a fairly decent job in destigmatizing the struggle and creating a narrative that's not based in powerlessness or victimhood. It's not about circling the drain and not being strong enough. It's about empowering individuals to take back their lives, admit something that so many others are feeling, and to do something about it. Mm, What a powerful transition to have witnessed and experienced. I want to ask you about Ibogaine when it was introduced to you. First of all, how how did you learn about it? And how desperate were you at the time that you learned about it for a solution? 
I was desperate, very desperate, also very hopeless. Marcus was hopeless as well. I knew that I was going to have to make this really difficult choice between him or my children. And as much as I wanted something to work, we had tried so many things at that point, And he was just so hopeless that I thought nothing would, would work. We learned about it from a friend who had gone through his own challenges and shared with us following his Ibogaine experience that he thought that it would really help Marcus. He knew Marcus was struggling. He and his wife were close friends of ours. And I didn't know anything about Ibogaine or psychedelics or the research that had happened that was so promising in the 50s and 60s. I knew that one person who we cared about and trusted said that this was a game changer and it could help. And I knew that we had nothing to lose. So it certainly felt like a Hail Mary. I think if anything, I wanted to know that I had tried everything. If the worst did happen, if we did lose Marcus, or if I did end up having to leave him, I would at least know that I checked that box because I was trying to just reconcile in my mind, I'm leaving, I've got to leave, I've got to, I've got to start over. And I knew that leaving him alone would be completely destabilizing. He needed the stabilization of a family. But it, it just, gosh, it was so foreign to me. I just wanted mm -hmm. to know that I had tried everything, even though I knew nothing about what we were getting into. So you're completely unfamiliar with psychedelics, like you'd never dabbled with them, you weren't. I'm a very conservative mm -hmm. Christian family in the Midwest. It was in my mind, I don't even know that I honestly put it together until afterwards. And I definitely had this sort of freak out moment where I'm like, oh my gosh, what have we done? What is this? It's so weird. I don't even, why did I do this? But no, at the time, I guess the morals and laurels on which I was raised did carry me through in a way that like led me down this path. And it was like, you don't leave someone you love behind. You fight like hell to mm -hmm. save your person. It would have been a lot easier for me to, and we had no relationship basis at that point. We loved each other out of duty and being together for so long, but it had been years since we felt like a real connection. Yet I felt a loyalty to him and I felt a need to continue fighting for him because mm -hmm. he couldn't fight for himself. So it sounds like going into this, it must have been challenging. I mean, you felt skeptical about this treatment. You'd never heard of Marcus has said that he was skeptical about it. I know increasingly people are having this conversation in the psychedelic space of the importance of things like preparation and integration. Did Marcus have any sort of support in preparing for his experience with Ibogaine? Was he like ready for what was about to happen, do you think? or No, <laughs> no. <laughs> In full transparency, he was not. And vets exist to fill the gaps that he experienced. You know, in hindsight, we know that he was not properly supported. Medical-wise, he was not properly supported. And therapeutically, he was not properly supported. We've mitigated all of those concerns with the programming at vets. But I do think he had done some of his own Googling due diligence on the web. And then he had spoken with I think one doctor and one therapist who had done Ibogaine and was there for him and held space for him. And actually is she's, she remains a very important 
person to him. But even with his reluctant attitude and lack of preparation, it was absolutely a game changer overnight. Describe that shift to me. In what ways was he different? And if you could also share a little bit about how your relationship has changed since then. Oh, for sure. So I have known Marcus since I was 17. And whenever I met and literally immediately fell in love with him, it was because he was just so warm and loving and charismatic and larger than life. No one met Marcus that didn't absolutely adore him. And then he had decided to go into the Navy. We found out I was pregnant with our son, went into the Navy, finished SEAL training in October of 2001. So 9-11 had just happened. And then the decade plus following that was just war, 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 war. That was something that we had never prepared for. And in those years, I lost the person that I knew and, and met in 1997. So we've been together for, oh my gosh, like literally going on 30 years at this point. At that point, we had been together for over 20 years, but I probably hadn't seen the person that I met in easily 10 or 15. And we'd grown apart because of the amount of time that we were spending living completely separate lives. And because he had to be in a certain mindset and a adapt to and abide by a certain culture uh, and community standard to be highly regarded in the SEAL teams. And unfortunately, it felt as though if you're a really good SEAL, you're probably not a really great family man. And we had drifted apart. War will do that, I think, under even more ideal circumstances, but we certainly weren't living ideal circumstances. When I arranged for him to leave to go to Mexico. I don't know exactly what I was hoping for other than just buying some time to figure out what our next move was. I didn't think that there could be something this restorative in this short amount of time, especially something I'd never heard of. What I ended up uh, witnessing immediately whenever I saw him was just the return of who I met in 1997. Like he was him again. He had become a monster. He had become a stranger. And it, we were able to reconnect in a way that was like meeting him for the very first time, except knowing him in a completely different way. And of course, there's an immediate relief that comes with that. And then there's this feeling of terror oh my gosh, don't let those walls down. You're just going to be disappointed. You're just going to be hurt. And so it was this ebb and flow over the course of the next several days, weeks, months of learning this new dynamic. And that's not to say that he didn't have bad days. He certainly immediately felt like there was a million pounds lifted from him. He was at peace. His spirit was back. And then I would see him sort of going into cycles of the self-doubt or the negative talk or whatnot. And I would become really scared. Oh gosh, here we go again. I've let down my walls. I knew it was too good to be true. But over time, we've been able to even out. And it's been like series of ups and downs, but like generally trending upward. 
And so his downs actually served a purpose, learning to get out of those ruts himself, learning to stop the escalation, learning something from the downs, like what takeaways, what perspective shifts. It was remarkable how this one experience could not only restore the core of who he is, but also give him such a shift in his perspective and future outlook. So I imagine for your entire family, that was just a profound thing to witness and experience. I'm not a parent, but I have a question about what it might've been like to explain psychedelic therapy to your children. What was that conversation like? How did they interpret that before it happened and and then afterwards? What was their sort of reaction to um, their father undergoing this sort of experimental treatment? I think ultimately they're really proud of him for continuing to fight. And I feel like we've, we've made the decision to fight as a family and to really try to stay in communication with how, what emotions are coming up and how we're feeling and how things are shifting. It was not something that we ever tried to hide from them. It's also not something that we really brought them into and made them a huge part of. It was like, we're, we're trying this and dad is committed to, um, to stabilizing and being a stabilizing force for the family. And this is just another thing that, that we're going to try. And then, you know, like me on the back end, it was, there was an immense sense of relief, but also this dread of, oh my gosh, is this too good to be true? Only time can address that. Only time and consistency would ever be able to truly put their minds at ease. And I think that given all that they've been through, they, they would say that Marcus stabilizing has created stabilization for them in their own personal lives. Our son, for example, was really struggling acting out um, they were teenagers when this happened. Maggie was 14 and Caden was 16. And so, you know, old enough to know what's going on. Also in some really challenging years for a parent. Um, and as soon as Marcus was stabilized and easier to be around, they both, and then our son especially, stabilized. So I appreciate you bringing that up, that period of that challenging period that can happen after a psychedelic experience where, you know, it's up and down and reintroducing yourself back into the regular world can be really hard. And the the value of that period and then becoming stable afterwards, I think you're so right. It requires commitment and discipline and all these things that are so much bigger than just this one experience. I think sometimes in this psychedelic hype, we tend to get caught up in like the medicine experience, what you've just said really proves that it is really about the work that happens after that. Can you make it stick ultimately? Yeah. I think the dosing session, of course, is key to everything, but the ongoing commitment to success and progress is what's most important. I think that for our community and for Marcus as an individual, he was much more accustomed to attaining something, checking it off the box, like goal attained, what's next. And this is different. This is a completely different set of circumstances where there really is no finish line here. There's like Mm -hmm. a constant state of improvement happening and there are small wins along the way, but it's not like, oh, I went to Mexico. Oh, my life is completely stable now. 
I'll just get back to business as usual. He's still mm-hmm. very much in his integration process. And we're going on, this will be seven years this November since his first psychedelic experience. He still wakes up. He still has bad days. He still meditates every morning. He still does breath work. He's still you know, committed to the ongoing work necessary, working with a coach, changing deep-rooted neural pathways, being aware. Mm-hmm. We go through our own communication challenges that require constant attention and dedication, but we're doing the work. Amazing. We spent a lot of time speaking about Marcus's experience with Ibogaine, but I'm curious about your own relationship with this medicine. Have you had an opportunity to experience Ibogaine? Do you plan to? I have not chosen to have my own Ibogaine journey yet. I don't necessarily think I plan to, but I also don't want to say that I would never. I would say that my relationship with Ibogaine had its own set of highs and lows and challenges that, you know, as I was supporting Marcus through his journey, which has also prompted vets as an organization to provide really, really thorough support services to spouses and partners who are supporting their veteran in this journey. I arranged for Marcus to go. I did the legwork in getting him scheduled and there and he got out of the car at the airport when I dropped him off to head to the clinic. And I would just like, oh, had this like release of, okay, this is it. This is it. This better work because I've got nothing left. This is our last option. And mm-hmm. I knew what was at stake if it didn't work. It worked. And I knew that it worked the second I saw him come around the corner. Mm-hmm. I knew that it worked. But I still had a complete freak out. When we got home, I was so confused, so unsupported, so relieved, so scared, afraid to open up, afraid of shutting down, afraid of the changes I was seeing. It seemed all of a sudden too woo-woo and weird for me. I didn't know how this interacted with my faith. Really, in essence, I I just more or less thought, what have I done? Mm -hmm. And I was literally like, Prayers answered. Everything's looking good. Seems too good to be true. Feels like a miracle. And I'm still thinking, what have I done? And Mm -hmm. then he had shifted so much that I suddenly was the one with the issue. It was like he was stabilized and I didn't know how to not be his caretaker. I didn't want to turn the mirror on myself. I didn't want to admit that I was having these fears and insecurities And so luckily I was working with a therapist at the time and we literally week by week went through and unpacked all of the things that I was feeling and I I stabilized myself. But I think my relationship with Ibogaine in the early days was really grateful, feeling like top of the mountain, unstoppable, this is the best thing in the whole wide world, to like bottom of the valley, what have we done? Mm -hmm. And I had to sort of climb back up to that point of victory myself. The medicine's not going to do that for anyone, including me as a spouse. I had to reconcile a lot of things with myself internally. And I've seen it replicated hundreds of times with spouses in our program where the dynamic shifts and suddenly there's a lot of insecurities that come about, or there's so much relief that suddenly it's safe to break. Hmm. And 
everything just sort of comes apart for the spouse because they no longer have to hold it all together and everything in between. I think it's normal and there's really no set way to approach it other than to be dedicated and working with a coach. Mm. I really appreciate your honesty about the challenges of coming to terms with the reality of this medicine. Like you said, your your faith. And this is something I touched on recently. I, I found it wild to go to Kentucky, a place that is so, you know, rooted in faith. And people were all about Ibogaine. And, I, you know, I was raised going to church. I found it just almost bizarre that these two things could coexist in this way. So thank you for sharing your perspective because it's a testament to the fact that it takes time to come around when you have X number of years of upbringing that tells you that these things are bad. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I had to Hmm. completely shift my entire perception, but I did that by searching internally, not relying on what anyone else had to say to me, but like really asking myself with the help of my Mm -hmm. therapist at the time, asking myself, very basic questions like were your prayers answered yes uh your husband's life was saved your marriage was saved your family was saved are all of those things of god yes describe your life before describe your life now desperation hopelessness despair depression dark doom gloom now light love hope happiness reconnection what's of god and what's not it became very clear when i started to ask myself these questions and i see week in and week out bondages being broken, lives being restored, marriages being saved, families being rectified. Like there's no doubt in my mind now that there is healing happening that is not of this Hmm. world. But in the beginning, yeah, it it shook everything up for me. Wow, that's so powerful. (laughs) How soon after Marcus' treatment did you decide to create Bets? Was it pretty immediate? You mentioned that there was about a year, a period where you're sort of not sure of whether or not you should be open and, and vulnerable about his experience. It was almost instantaneous in that like at the retreat center, clinic, whatever, Marcus turned to me and said, this is it. This is exactly what his friends and former teammates needed. And our community has such a heart for service. We really take care of one another. It started with just this knowing, like we had walked up to a line, knowing the suffering, knowing the secrets that everyone was more struggling to some degree in silence. It was more like a mandate. We have to do something about it. We didn't really know what that looked like. His treatment ironically fell on Veterans Day of 2017 and there's significance to that. There's also the following month, there was our first donor who contacted us and said, I want to give to a veteran organization, but I want to know where my money goes. I really want to make it, want it to make a difference. I don't want to like donate to this big conglomerate where it's just paying salaries. And Marcus said, well, we've been talking about ways that we could help my friends. Just last month, I had a treatment that I'm going to say saved my life. I have a friend who's really struggling. If you want, we can't give you a tax write-off, but if you want to make a donation to the clinic, I can send my friend and maybe a few more. Well, she ended up making like a $20,000 donation. That was enough to send four or five of our friends. And it was like this sort of, I don't know, Dallas Buyers Club of referrals of, okay, well, we've got this money there. Who do you know that might want to go? Who do you know that's struggling? Because no one was saying that they were struggling at the time. And little by little, they started going, same results, sharing with their friends. And then it really just took off from there. The grassroots portion started immediately after Marcus's retreat. 
Vets as a formal 501c3 organization was born about 18 months later, officially, following the suicide of our friend Chad. Okay. And so you you mentioned earlier some of the support options that you offer for spouses who are supporting their partners. What are some of the other modern support options that you offer veterans that weren't available at the scale they were when Marcus was looking for help? Oh, gosh. Vets programming has really stepped it up in the last year or two. We've always offered one-on-one integration coaching. All of our integration coaches are licensed, trained trauma therapists. They have a unique understanding of veteran issues, and they all have some psychedelic integration training or specialty course as well. So we've always offered that. We have always offered a peer support group integration model. So we have offerings six days a week at vets where we're coming together for guided meditations or group integration. A couple of years ago, we established a community platform. So it's more or less a social media site for just vets grant recipients. So they're able to get on there and communicate, share ideas, tips. We've got different groups. We've got men's groups, women's groups, couples groups, book groups, uh, healthy lifestyle hack groups, like all (laughs) kinds of things. We have monthly and quarterly workshops. So today we kicked off the 2024 RISE workshop for spouses who are supporting veteran their veteran in this journey. And the RISE workshop is, I'm co-hosting that with my therapist from back in the good old days where she helped me navigate my own process. And so it's really just allowing spouses to reclaim their identity outside of the veteran or the caretaker role. And we have things like this all the time. We have a heart-centered communications workshop. We have a journal, we have ongoing journaling workshops, um, honesty groups, all kinds of times and reasons and ways in which we bring our grant recipients together. We're going to be rolling out in-person events in uh, 2024. And we have a big annual fundraising gala where we all come together uh, every year on Veterans Day or around Veterans Day uh, to commemorate the success of the year. And personally, I love uh, that it's the anniversary of Marcus's journey back from the brink. Hmm. Well, that's incredible to be uh, giving back in that way, you know, ensuring that other veterans have access to these kinds of things and that they have not just access, but a space to talk about it and a community to exist with afterwards. Because I think that's another thing that has been a part of the conversation lately is this element of community. It's one thing to go through this journey, but if you have no one around you that's also going on that journey, it can also be kind of isolating. So how many veterans have you been able to support? And I know that you played a role also in this uh, study recently that Dr. Nolan Williams was a part of. I was wondering if you wanted to talk a little bit about your role in that. I'd love to. Between the grassroots portion that launched VETS and then official VETS work, we're right around a thousand. By the end of this year, VETS alone will be at a thousand veterans that we've provided funding to, to leave the United States for access to psychedelic therapy. Some have chosen to do a ketamine series here in the U.S., but most have actually chosen to do the same protocol that Marcus did, which I began in 5-MeO. And then I would say second to that would be psilocybin. We're really excited about the uh, 
advancement of MDMA through FDA clinical trials and the commercialization of that, which you know hopefully will come later this year. We think MDMA has immense promise. We're very excited about the possibility of funding a study looking at MDMA for couples therapy, which I think would be absolutely phenomenal. But all that said, Ibogaine has been the choice of most of the veterans in our program. So yeah, the the study with Dr. Nolan Williams at Stanford is really special. I was never so worried that Marcus had just PTSD. That was his primary diagnosis. But like knowing Marcus for as long as I have, knowing our community at that point for 20 years, I just thought this doesn't completely resonate with me. However, there were brain autopsies that were starting to be discussed within our community and other military members who are being diagnosed with something called interface astroglial scarring from blast exposure. And then I'd also heard about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, being diagnosed post-mortem in football players and other athletes involved in contact sports. And I just started thinking, this seems like what Marcus might be up against. He has 15 years of playing football. That's how I met him. My dad was his football coach in college, followed by 13 years working with explosives in the SEAL teams. He's being diagnosed as having primarily a psychological issue and being given all these prescription medications. However, the the this is not what I'm seeing at home. And following his Ibogaine treatment, his neurological functioning had returned in such a way that I was just astounded. And I reached out to several people who I thought would care, key stakeholders within our own community, military leaders, researchers, doctors, professionals, pathologists, lots of people. No one took me seriously until I was connected with Dr. Nolan Williams at Stanford. And I told him my observations. My dad's been a football coach for over 40 years. Football's been a huge part of my life. And I started doing the research on how detrimental concussions are and what kind of fallout that can cause. And then blast injury, which is a fairly new phenomenon. And I thought the two together and I began as a potential treatment, what I had seen in Marcus's, the return of his neurological functioning was absolutely remarkable. And Nolan being a brain scientist was like, I would take a look at that. The idea for the study was born. It was paused due to COVID. It finally started in twenty late 2021. We were wrapped within nine months. The data starts to come in and Nolan's, there's got to be something wrong with this data. Like, we've never seen this before. So I don't know if he told you this, but he basically had his, his team recode everything and feed he the data back that. through. Everything came out exactly the same. And it basically has reiterated and validated everything that we've lived, we feel, we've seen, and we've seen it replicated hundreds of times. So even though the study is 30 people, anecdotally, we've seen this replicated hundreds more times. And the results are incredible. They speak for themselves. It's just, it's amazing. They really are so remarkable. I was so excited to see it come out and then to talk to him about it and hear, you know, about his initial skepticism and then having his, as you mm. mentioned, his postdoc rewrite everything. Yeah, I think it really <laughs> speaks to how how powerful these substances are. You've talked about how rallying around uh, veterans creates what you call a purple space, one where mm-hmm. political affiliation doesn't matter and people are simply 
unified by their desire to create uh, better supports for people who have served. What sort of advancements in support and care for veterans have we seen as a result of this sort of bipartisan understanding? Well, Vets has just experienced an absolutely historic year where many of the things that we've been working on in each of our pillars have come to fruition. 2023 wrapped our most successful year yet in terms of offering grants. We were targeted to to support 225 veterans and we ended the year at 233, so our, our highest year yet. In addition to that, the Stanford study was published, which I guess that was technically 2024, but the data there is absolutely incredible. So that takes care of the second pillar. And then the third pillar of vets is advocacy. And we position the credible voices of the veterans that we serve in our program alongside data as collected by Dr. Williams at Stanford. And then we advocate for change at the state and federal levels. The three pillars really uh, synergistically are very effective. And we're just, I think, realizing some of the, the most exciting developments in terms of legislation and uh, policy change that that have occurred to date. So VETS worked very closely with Representative Dan Crenshaw's office uh, in D.C., as well as other members of Congress, um, particularly Representative Morgan Luttrell, uh, Jack Bergman, Lou Correa, a number of other politicians. Even AOC has has worked very closely with Dan Crenshaw on this issue. And the for the first time ever, psychedelic research has been included in the 2024 National Defense Authorization Act, which is in essence the budget that funds the government. Over a course the course of five years, $15 million per year will be allocated to uh, psychedelic research in the active duty population. We want to do the same or more for the veteran population. And it's historic. It's absolutely incredible to see lawmakers come together on something. I feel like at this point, our nation is so divided. It's terrifying. Mm -hmm. So to see them like working together in a way that not only could bring healing to individual families, but the ripple out effect that is undeniable in relation to these therapies. I just want to hold on to the hope that this could actually bring healing to our nation and to the world, not just to the veteran community. And I think veterans are the perfect group to sort of wedge the door and start the ball rolling in this direction. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for your continued work, your and Marcus's continued work. Uh, I think it's incredible to witness the work that you've done, to see the changes, and to hear that so many people have received benefit. Uh, I look forward also to follow-ups on Dr. Nolan Williams' study. He said that there are still a few things that have yet to be published. So absolute pleasure to have you share your story and be so honest with us. Perhaps in the future, we can have you and Marcus on talking about work that you guys are doing at Vets. We would love that. Thank you for the opportunity to be on the podcast. Cheers. You've been listening to Ibogaine Uncovered. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe on Spotify and Apple, leave a review, or share it with your friends. This podcast is brought to you by Beyond and produced by Eamon Armstrong, mixed by Trevor Coulter and edited by Ariel Villafane. Beyond is the world's premier network of medically-based Ibogaine treatment facilities for addiction, depression, anxiety, and PTSD. 
Beyond's mission is to help people end chemical and behavioral dependency and to end the suicide epidemic with psychotherapeutic treatment and psychedelic plant medicine innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It does not constitute medical advice and does not necessarily reflect Beyond's views on mental health treatment or personal development. For inquiries and further information, please visit beyondibogain.com and make an inquiry using the web form or email beyond at hello at beyondibogain.com.